Dr. Andrew Wickline, an opioid-sparing total joint surgeon who is recognized as the highest volume orthopedic surgeon in New York State, questions. You spend two hours in the operating room with your patient. What are you doing the other 3,024 hours to optimize their recovery? That's where Upgrade by Men comes in. If you don't already know what Upgrade by Mend is, it is a pre- and post-care program designed by leading professionals. The program provides patients with remote monitoring, clinical nutrition, and a team of nurses and dietitians acting as an extension of the physician's practice. The program is covered by insurance and is proven to enhance outcomes from your total joint surgery. If you're a clinician and speeding up patient healing time is a priority for you, head over to men.me to learn more about men's digital upgrade program, or please reach out to partners at men.me. All right, we got a cool episode again. It just amazes me all the great people that are out there in orthopedics. Actually, what I like to say is we find the most incredible, unique people. They just happen to be orthopedic surgeons. Jovan Leskowski, who's an orthopedic surgeon of Macedonia uh, descent. Uh, he's a child of immigrants. Uh, who has uh, saw the saw the light for orthopedics, uh, became enamored by an orthopedic surgeon, set him on his way, and he is now a master hip arthroscopist, travels the world educating on his new techniques. I love his his crossover between the shoulder and the hip, how he's taken rotator cuff things that we now do in the hip as well. Really very passionate, incredibly articulate, is a, a great uh, person for education on the podium. And really, this is a great conversation. I know you're going to like it. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of uh, Ortho Show podcast, where we're bringing you the best of the best in orthopedics. Everyone knows that. Don't uh, Please don't forget to check us out on our YouTube channel so you can see us now talking back and forth. We have an outstanding guest today, Dr. Jovan Laskowski, who's an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in hip preservation as well as shoulder, loves orthobiologics as well. He is the man. He is the dude from Ohio. Jovan, love him. so nice to have you on, brother. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it very much. Happy to be on. Yeah, you got a lot of great stuff that you're doing, which is why we're really excited to bring you on. You sort of live in your own world. You've got this great social media thing that you're doing. You're educating. You're on the podium. You're doing all the great stuff. So we're we're really thrilled to have you on. But uh, let's. But before we get started, I got to ask you a quick question because we always do our research. And I was checking out your website. It's really cool. Is that you actually hurdling on the website, or is that someone else? No, I would break both my hips if that was me hurdling. <laughs> uh, my is, days are far, far gone now. There is a slight resemblance of. Uh, you got to go back and look at it a little carefully. But I was like, I don't think so. But we better ask. Uh, but look, we always start from the beginning, and and I and I know as we as we let in before we came on. For those that are, are listeners, you can't see it, but on the YouTube channel, there's a Macedonian warrior in the background uh, over there, uh, just behind Jovan's shoulder. But tell us about where you're born, what you, where's your family from, are you the first doctor, where did it all start? Yeah, so uh, I grew up uh, in Canton, Ohio, uh, as the uh, suit of armor behind me uh, would denote. Uh, my parents were both from what at that time was Yugoslavia, uh, but is now Macedonia. So uh, son of two immigrants, uh, really interesting way to grow up. 
Uh, I lived in a house with my grandma and my grandpa, uh, my aunt and uncle and their two kids, and my mom, my dad, and me and my brother. And so it was a very loud, uh, very boisterous house, as you could imagine. Uh, we were all talkers. Uh, and so you'd walk in at any holiday and you'd think that that the roof was blowing off. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming you're bilingual. There had to have been a lot of. Uh, so what's the language for Macedonian? I'm terrible. Give it yeah, to us. It, it's a Slavic derivative. It's Macedonian. Uh, my grandmother uh, spoke it to us. My parents spoke it to us. And, and uh, grandma turns 100 next month. Wow. Uh, so she's she's a tough, tough old gal. And she's still with a full deck of cards, which is pretty impressive. Now it's funny. Is that is that part of the blue zone? Is that sort of that uh, the the area because she's living to a hundred where it came to mind as far as nutrition and things that they're eating, or is, does Macedonia fall outside of that? You know what? I I think it's just barely in the blue zone because I think in terms of of latitude longitude, it's just north of Greece, and sure. their weather is pretty spectacular year round. And you know, I grew up. You know, she would she had a huge garden in the back, and so everything we ate came out of that garden or she made by hand. Uh, and I, I give that up to her for, for her longevity. Is she made nothing but homemade meals, and that's all she eats to this day. Oh, I love it. So, all right. So, so an immigrant family, lots going on. Boisterous family. You have no choice. You're going to succeed. You're going to be educated. You know, the next generation is so important. When was it that, that sort of medicine came to mind for you? That that's what the direction you were going. Yeah, it's interesting because my original path was I wanted to be a history professor and I wanted to play college football. And so like most of these ortho stories go, uh, I ended up breaking my ankle my junior year, uh, met a really great orthopedic surgeon uh, by the name of Al Michael. And he was the first doc I met who was just normal. You could have a conversation with this guy. He was hilarious. And so when I healed up, he let me come to the OR for a day and I was hooked. I go, you know, you can do this job and be normal. And he goes, absolutely you can. So I completely switched gears. Uh, I applied and got into a six year combined BSMD program uh, through what's now Neomed, but then was Neo-UCOM. So finished college at 19, finished med school at 23, and then it was off to the races from there. Wow, that's a that's a rapid program, man. I was looking at you and I thought that was one of the questions I was gonna ask as far as, you know, a six-year program, because you definitely accelerated through. You know, it's so funny that you said, you know, uh, that this that Dr. Michael was this cool guy. You know, Rick Madsen was the same way. He's like, I was doing a neurosurgery, you know, thing in D.C., and I was, after two years, I was like, I just don't want to do this. He goes to the anesthesiologist. He's like, what specialty should I go into? He's like, you got to go into orthopedic surgery. Those are the guys that are always happy and having a good time, and that was his story. So there you go, two in a row uh, yep. saying the same thing. All right, so you blast through undergrad and medical school in no time at the age of 23. You're, you're accelerated. Uh, it's orthopedics all the way. You were destined for that as soon as you broke your ankle. So, you know, so so how do you, so talk to us through residency at this point now. You are, uh, you're in residency in 2007, 2008. Is that about right as far as the timeline? Yeah, 06 is, 06 is when I graduated um, from medical school. So 06 to 2011. All right. So what's going on in residency in 2006 to 2011? What's exciting? What's the subspecialty? Because it certainly ain't hip arthroscopy yet. That's still in its earliest days. But what was getting you excited back in that time? Yeah, I'll tell you the biggest influence that I think I had during residency was uh, Rob Bell. So Rob, as you know, was president of Shoulder and Elbow Society. And I was just blown away the first time I set foot in his OR. And you couldn't you couldn't go in his OR until you were a fourth year. But when you talk about perfection through the scope, 
it was unbelievable. Everything he did was effortless. And he took me through every procedure and how to perfect it. And I was hooked. I mean, shoulder was truly my first love. And I was in love with the scope. I mean, growing up in the 80s as a kid, you know, video games were, were pretty hot. And I was like, I could play video games for the rest of my career uh, and help people doing it. And so uh, I probably pestered Rob way too much. I spent most of my chief year with him and one of my current partners, Kurt Knoll, and I just fell in love with the scope. And the, the hip thing was just coming on the horizon, uh, but that was more of a fellowship thing. Yeah, so that's great because, you know, it's it's so funny that there aren't more of you. And and so, you know, the hip and the shoulder, they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're kind of the same, large volume joints. There's, you know, the shape of things is a little different, but there's a lot of similarities in the things that are going on. So it's not unreasonable for the brain to be able to understand both of those spaces, right? The other thing for our listeners, when you think of a joint, most of the time you think of us scoping a joint, but more often than not, what we're doing is outside of the joints and the spaces that are around. So it's interesting. So, so shoulder was big that, you know, in 95, 96, when I was finishing my Curl and Joe Fellowship, we were scoping, but we weren't really doing anything. But a decade later, there were actually these things called suture anchors, you know, and yeah, instruments, yeah. you know, so you could pass stuff and actually do something. So you're in that 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 heyday of the development of all these new great things. So shoulder arthroscopy was there for you. All right. So then you decide you're going to do a fellowship. Uh, you want to continue to hone your skills. Uh, you do your fellowship at the University of Chicago, which is a sports medicine arthroscopy. Give the shout outs. What, what's, who's going on there? What's happening at that yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got I got a bunch of shout outs. So uh, Bruce Ryder, who obviously founded the fellowship uh, and still writes some amazing stuff uh, for AJSM. Uh, Sherwin Ho and uh, Jason Coe, uh, both were uh, my fellowship directors, along with um, Greg Portland. And it was an amazing year because they were very, very much into uh, innovating and trying to improve upon things, particularly in the hip space. You know, as you said, shoulder at that time, we had instrumentation, we had everything. And fellowship was when I had the, my first idea for an invention. And that was the, the reverse cutting hook knife. And uh, I still remember Mark one, uh, it was this long hook shaped blade. And I hooked it, I, I attached it to a uh, uh, drill chuck and that was Mark One. And the idea was there is I could get a grip on it. I could do a capsulotomy safer. And the guys loved it. And they encouraged me to, to develop and innovate it. Uh, but really, the big moment that changed me forever was Dr. Bird came as a visiting professor to the University of Chicago. And he gave a talk for Grand Rounds. And that was it. I was absolutely hooked because everything he showed was effortless and it looked so easy and smooth. And I go, I'm going to be like him when I grow up one day. Uh, so that was a big life-changing moment. Yeah. So for our listeners, he's one of the founding fathers of hip arthroscopy, right? And, uh, but he wasn't, you know, in the earliest days, you were just excited, you know, to get the, the camera into the joint, right? Like I was working with Joe McCarthy doing hip arthroscopy in, in 1993 or something like that. It, you know, we weren't doing anything, but, you know, just in that short window of time, things really sort of elevated and Dr. Bird, so fantastic. So, so did you do some exo at that point? Did you go beyond your fellowship? Did you do some extra stuff? I mean, how did you really get good at hip arthroscopy? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky that I got a lot of volume during um, fellowship. But again, that hunger for knowledge, you know, it never kind of stopped. It never stopped for me. And so I went and flew down to Mexico City, spent time with Victor Liz Latouri, uh, because he at that time was talking about uh, ileosis impingement. He was talking about uh, gluteal tendinopathy, tendinitis, possibly tears. I went and spent time with uh, Brian Kelly at HSS in Manhattan, uh, went and flew out and spent time with Philippon. And, and the list goes on and on. I mean, anytime I get a chance, if I'm traveling, I can get in an OR with one of my colleagues. I'm I'm there because those little tiny pearls will make you better and better along the way. And the beauty of, of our little community is it's very collegial and we're all in it to try and make that a better uh, you know experience for both the physicians and the patients. Yeah, I mean, to have the humility to understand that there's people out there that know more than you do, and then to be able to have the courage to be able to call them up and say, hey, you know, I'd like to spend some time with you. Uh, I'm sure you know Andrew Wickline is an arthroplasty surgeon up in New York. And, you know, Andrew makes a point very similar to what you're saying. Every year, he identifies an individual that he thinks is really special, uh, and he makes arrangements to go to their operating room to be able to watch and learn. We should do more of that. I really I really believe that. We have conferences. We get together. We have talks, you know, and we do all those sorts of things. But it's an, it's something else entirely to watch somebody do a procedure live uh, and to be able to learn those tips and pearls from the experts. So kudos to you for taking all that time and energy. And now, you know, how many hip arthroscopies are you doing a year? Uh, probably around 650 on average. That's a lot, dude. Yeah, but Scott, you got to remember, it's not just FAI labral stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So all the extra articular stuff I ended up learning after fellowship. Uh, and so there's no way in a town the size of the city of Akron that you're going to be able to find that many labral tears a year. But I'll tell you, gluteal tendon tears is probably about a 20% of the general population over age 65. And then the work we've done with hamstring tears, uh, particularly partial tears that get missed a lot on, on imaging and MRI, that, that's how you get to that number. Plus, you know, obviously I have the shoulder practice as well. Uh, that's another probably 200 shoulders uh, a year that we do. That's fantastic. So for the listeners... FAI, it's just a term that means like when you're inside the hip joint, the labrum, which is this little cartilage thing can be torn and things can hurt and you put the camera in, you debreed it. But the, the problem with that is you got to have really good indications to make sure that the, the patient's going to do well, right? The number one way in which you get successful outcomes with hip arthroscopy is being uh, specific on who you operate on. But these other things, like for example, the gluteus tear is like the rotator cuff of the hip right? It's a very similar tendon. It's a very similar way in which you can fix it. And these patients that are 65, they're out playing pickleball now. And, you know, they've, oh, been, yeah. they've been sitting on their chair for five years. They get up to go play pickleball. Shocking that they have you know, injuries, but they can do really well with these extra articular, you know, repairs and the hamstring tears that you're talking about in athletes as well. So it's fascinating that the space in which you're working in the types of operations that you're working on the hip has really expanded, you know, over time. And so it's a natural transition too for the shoulder for you, because it's gotta be a very similar feel. Yeah, I mean, I took all the principles that I learned for rotator cuff, you know, tendon repair surgery, and I just applied them to those same two pathologies. Uh, you know, pickleball, it's interesting that you bring up pickleball because I can tell you I've seen more partial hamstring tears from pickleball than I have any other sport uh, out there. And it's that quick lunge that they go after. But, you know, when you look at gluteal tendon repair, you know, I, I learned it from, from Brian Kelly, who was who's the godfather of that space. And his portals didn't make sense to me. And I go, well, why don't I just do my best to turn this into a rotator cuff tear? So I plan the portals out under fluoro and literally the residents go, this is just like if I turn my head this way 
rotate. This is just the giant rotator cuff. And, and that's what it is. It, it's unique in its own way because the tendon tissue quality of the gluteal tendons is much thinner than that of a cuff. Uh, and that's kind of how we got into the, the augmentation space uh, there. Uh, but it is such a similar transition, easy transition for a shoulder scope uh, surgeon to make into the hip world. And not they could even not even do FAI surgery and be facile at both those. Yeah, you know, and it's going to be interesting. I think that's got to be one of the fastest growing, you know, subspecialties in orthopedics at this point is is the world of hip arthroscopy. But yet, how many how many true hip arthroscopy fellowships are there right now and available? Very, very few. I mean, the majority, Scott, are going to be sports programs where you get your hip arthroscopy rotation. And one of the reasons I was fortunate enough, I got a month to travel and I spent a week at each of my top four kind of fellowship locations. And I got to see hands on, basically, you're going to do hip arthroscopy the entire year without a break because both the, the my fellowship directors did it. And so it was good because I got the repetition that I needed to become good at it. Because in terms of learning curve, there is no operation higher. You give me 10 cases, Scott, and I'll have you scoping and fixing glute tendons. No question. For labral <laughs> surgery, it's a completely different ball game. It's just a technically difficult surgery. But again, there's a lot of us like myself that are out there trying to innovate and make it more accessible so everybody can start, you know, helping folks out that have that problem. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, uh, I did, first of all, there's a problem that, that, that's been identified. And, you know, it's so funny with pickleball, I got to bring it up. I'm going to let you operate on all the tendon tears that are up there. But man, ortho laser, we're crushing it when it comes to pickleball because all those mid-substance muscle strains and oh, yeah. bruises and all that stuff, that's perfect for laser. We're actually sponsoring pickleball, the professional pickleball tournaments now across the country with ortho laser because we're so, we feel so combat uh, so uh, um, uh, upside on, on the use of laser for that, those types of things. So, that's you know, great. kudos to you for sort of developing and really sort of innovating in this space as well. Let's talk a little bit about that. What's your relationship with industry? Um, you you have you started innovating very early on in your career uh, and you must be doing a lot of that now how does that work for you yeah you know i i loved your podcast with parvizi uh because it was really interesting to see how he came up with his own way to help surgeons innovate uh so i was in, involved with a surgeon design team eight surgeons that were a mix of uh us and international and we just wanted to create safer instrumentation for hip arthroscopy for the patient so that we can avoid any iatrogenic scuffs, but also to make the procedure more straightforward for, for the surgeons performing it. Uh, and a lot of what we came up with is, is really great stuff. And it just is, it's a common sense approach to, okay, we have a problem. What is the safest way to address that problem without damaging articular cartilage or injuring the labrum? Uh, I worked with uh, ConMed and Smith and Nephew. Uh, I'm on a design team with them to create a new hip wand, which unfortunately is paused because of COVID. Uh, and a lot of the, the innovation kind of stopped when COVID happened. Uh, and it's starting to get going again. But, you know, really the goal with it is, is to make life easier for the surgeon and for the patient. And if we can cut, you know, what I like to call the pain points, of the operation, if we can cut those down to a bare minimum uh, by providing better instrumentation, we can get better outcomes for patients. So that's been kind of my experience with it here, you know, 11 years out uh, from fellowship. Yeah. So again, I mean, the partnership with innovation with industry allows for innovation. You can't, you can't, you need a John Glenn, you know, you need a pilot to be able to try something new and different. You can't just have the engineers build it and then hope that it works. And then I like, I really enjoyed your your language on that in that 
yes, you're spending time out of your busy you know, world and clinic to develop this instrument, which you should be paid for your time, by the way, because you are doing that. But yet it's a missionary role. You're creating new instruments that make it better for outcomes for the patients to have better. You know, So that synergy and relationship with industry, I think, if handled correctly, is transparent you know, and open, I think is a great way to, to sort of push us you know, into the to new direction. So let's talk a little about something else which I think that you're passionate about too, and that's the orthobiologic space. How are you using orthobiologics in your clinical practice, both operative and non-operative? Yeah, you know, non-operative, uh, I offer PRP to several of my patients. Uh, the story behind that's very simple. You know, you, we and I both know the literature and it was very, very, uh, you know, hit or miss in the early days. So when my daughter was born, uh, she's eight years old now, we had her home from the hospital and I tripped on a toy airplane and I had her in my left arm. So I fell awkwardly onto my uh, right wrist and I had, a, I had a UCL subsheath tear. And so I could barely lift a cup of coffee, scared the daylights out of me. And so one of my uh, hand partners, uh, Crystal, suggested like, hey, try a PRP shot. And I go, man, the literature's all over the place. I don't think it'll do anything. And so sure enough, firsthand experience made me a believer in it. So I had a total of three and that was eight years ago. So I offer that for both my hip and uh, my shoulder patients. I think it's a powerful non-operative tool and something that if you're fortunate enough to be a responder to PRP, it can really help you. In the OR, we'll do a smattering of different orthobiologics. We'll do uh, BMAC, uh, we'll do PRP. I do a lot of that for my collegiate division one athletes, uh, mostly because school's foot, foot in the bill and it's not a huge deal for them. Uh, I do a lot of biologic augmentation. Uh, so I've used several graphs, uh, acellular dermis being one, uh, rhodium being one, and biobrace being one. And, and really, when you think about what Steve Snyder did, so many years ago when he, he introduced this concept of, you know, augmentation for rotator cuff and what it did to our outcomes for massive rotator cuffs. That's really what I wanted to do is apply that same principle to the hip. So it wasn't anything novel or anything special, but it was taking a principle that was proven and applying it to a new world, and a new space, uh, you know, in orthopedics. Yeah. So again, for our listeners, you know, Judy's listening. So the PRP is the thing when we draw the blood out, we spin it down. There's these growth factors and we inject them. It's super cool. And there's more and more literature and evidence really sort of backing at this point. So I think most doctors have sort of gotten to the point that we're over the hump that PRP has a role in their non-operative practice. There's BMAC, which is bone marrow aspirate concentrate. You pull it out of the hip, they put a needle in, they draw it out. So certainly much easier to do in the operating room than it is in the office setting, although Donnie Buford has a video where he can do it in 20 minutes and, you know, but that's the Donnie Buford's of the world. Uh, and then all these patches, you know, which is super interesting. And Sarif Shah just, you know, published his meta-analysis uh, in the journal of, uh, I think it's ASCS and looking at uh, implants uh, in, the, in the setting of rotator cuff repair. Uh, demonstrating that there was significant improvement in healing I mean, with, with these types of implants, whether it's acellular dermis, which was included, uh, whether it's the collagen-based implants, whether it's the collagen structural-based implants. So it'll be interesting what is now sort of still out there and people like you and I are doing it. Like I just looked at my data for the biobrace for the rotator cuff. I've got 71 out of 78 of complex rotator cuff repairs, as well as uh, revision rotator cuff repairs that are surviving with this biobrace implant. That's a really good number for these, you know, complex tear patterns. So anywho, bottom line is, is that there's a lot of things that we're doing, right, that are going to, you know, sort of evolutionize what we're doing. And the things now where we may have to get 
prior authorization may be one day. You're not going to do a rotator cuff or gluteus medius repair unless you put one of these implants on. We won't pay for it. So I think that it's wonderful to see that you're moving from shoulder back and forth to shoulder and hip, and that uh, that really sort of helps us in our in our science and where we go from here. Yeah, Scott, you know, it, it's it's exactly what you said. It's going to, I believe, become the standard of care uh, one day. What we need to do as, you know, clinician scientists is we need to show, okay, what is the best graft for what situation? Because I can tell you that, you know, we don't walk on a rotator cuff, but we do walk on our gluteus medius. And I think the, the, the structural characteristics as well as the physical demands of those tendons have to be addressed in a specific way. And, you know, it's up to us to figure that out for, you know, the rest of orthopedics and the rest of society. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. I mean, we're doing it a lot better than we used to, right? It used to be all about experience-based medicine, but your generation in particular is really caught up on evidence-based medicine, right? You've got to prove it. Uh, you've got to be able to show the data that what you're doing actually works. You can't just say, I'm a nice guy, I got to drive a nice car, my wife's beautiful, come and have, I'll, I'll operate on you, you know? So uh, maybe we should cut that out, Grace. I don't know. We'll leave it in. But anyhow, I think leave it in, Scott, because my wife is really beautiful. <laughs> All right. I love it. So is mine. So that's awesome. So we're both getting some rowdy points there. So uh, yeah, no, but the point is, so let's talk about that. I mean, you're integrally involved in research. You're on the podium. You know, you're trying to really make a difference here and settle the score. What works? and what doesn't work. So what drives you and your passion right now when it comes to research? I mean, I think the, the big thing is outcomes. I think it's it's what you said, prove it. Uh, you know, we're, we're repairing, you know, gluteal tendons through the scope. Is that superior to doing it open? Uh, you know, I just had a debate with Brian Kelly at AOSSM about that. Uh, we just had a, a paper provisionally accepted for publication on endoscopic repair of full thickness three tendon retracted hamstring tears. And I can tell you that that that's a big passion of mine because we've done up to 15 centimeters retracted all endoscopically uh, through you know four or five portals. And what a boon that is for your patients because you're not sitting on a giant T incision. You don't have to worry about those terrible wound complications. The nerves are easy to find, easy to protect. And I think that, that that's what really drives me is to take these procedures that we've developed and make them now the gold standard of care across the board. But that harkens back to the education. That harkens back to, we need more courses. We need more cadaver labs. We need, you know, people that are like you, that are willing to give their time, you know, for a non-for-profit course to teach others new techniques. And I think that's that's really the pathway forward and, and for both orthopedics and, and for society as a whole. Well, it's pretty obviously, you know, why you're you're sought after. You're incredibly articulate. You're passionate. You're innovative. You know, all of those things in space. So, all right, let me ask you a question. What so? What's the brand for Jovan Leskowski? What what is it that you think people you want people to know about you, both professionally uh, from your colleagues, but your patients? What's the brand of Jovan? Perfect is good enough. <laughs> yeah, we, we, that's a good it's, slogan. That's I not, think it's not I think easy it's, to get you know, to. I like we, that. We would say for years, the enemy of good is better, yeah. and you know, don't yeah. go chase perfect. But I think that that if you can strive for what you know, Rob Bell showed me, and Doctor Bird showed me, and Phil Pond showed me, and Kelly showed me, why can't we strive for that? Like every case to be as perfect as humanly possible. We're, we're never going to hit it. We can never be perfect every single day. But if we set ourselves that bar of, hey, we're going to keep going at this until we get this thing down to perfection. And I, I think that's that's really, you know, for me, my technical love of orthopedics is working with my hands. You know, I grew up with my dad who he would never pay anybody to fix anything. He's like, listen, we're going to go get the wrench. We're going to fix this thing. 
And, and I get a lot of joy and satisfaction from working with my hands. And, and I think that's really the, the thing that I love about my job the most is the technical side of it. And then also that the, we've got this silly little tradition or office, there's a little bell that's hung. And at six months when we discharge somebody post-op and they're doing great, they ding the bell and give me a high five as they go run out of the office. So we it's, were just- it's those kind of things that keep you going. No, I love it. We were just talking about that. We need a cowbell in my office. I do a lot of cow collagen. So I like when they're done. I think it's a great idea. Let them hit yeah. the bell. All right. So how do you let so let's talk a little something about that I'm passionate about and you are too, which is which is social media and your brand. So how do your ideal patients find you? What's the path to getting into your office that's yeah, so, most successful? You know, Siggy, in, in town, word of mouth. No question. Um, you know, word of mouth is is the best social media, I think. And that's how most people find me. Um, I only do LinkedIn. I don't do Twitter. I don't do any of the other stuff just because I found it's a giant black hole that can take up your entire day scrolling through. Uh, but I do LinkedIn. So that way, you know, my patients out there can see, you know, the professional things that we're up to and, and what we're what we're doing to help the the world of orthopedics. What's interesting is somehow, some way, somebody posted my name on the uh, post your hip pain support group on Facebook. Oh no, that's not a good thing. That's not what you want, uh, <laughs> but it actually has been good because I've been able to help people. You know, for years that's- we went down this path where it's, it's piriformis, 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 piriformis. And to be honest, I think the number one diagnosis back there is a, is a partial thickness hamstring tear. Uh, that's been my experience with it along with issue femoral impingement. I've seen maybe seven or eight real cases of piriformis but I've got uh, a very skilled radiologist that lives up the street from me, uh, Trisha Delzell, who's a world-renowned MSK radiologist. She really helped me kind of crack the uh, that kind of black box that is the posterior hip, uh, and she's phenomenal. So when I get a patient from, let's say, Vermont or Washington or Seattle, wherever it may be, usually we set it up so it's a dual visit. So you fly in, you're going to see Delzell or my partner, uh, Travis Cleland, who does ultrasound for us as well. And then I'll see you for a clinic visit and we'll put all that puzzle together for you and solve it. Um, So that's been kind of the pathway or the funnel that that, by which people people have found me. You know, it's interesting because patients are so much more savvy and word of mouth doesn't happen just, you know, at church or at work. I mean, word of mouth happens through Facebook and Instagram and 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 these things like you've talked about where these these chat groups or communities that come together. Uh, but that word of mouth helps to spread. And the, and the vast majority of patients now are going online and they're checking out your reviews and they want to know who you are and the stuff 100%. that you're doing. Right. So it's probably happening for you by osmosis for a lot of reasons. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. We We definitely see that a lot. I mean, look. Bottom line, Jovan, you're awesome. This is great. I love your energy. I love your passion. Uh, I love the the fact that you're going to innovate and educate all at the same time, and you're working with industry. You're 11 years in, dude. You got you got a lot going on. It's good stuff. I appreciate it, Siggy. No, it's great. Really, uh, we look forward to. Uh, am I going to see you at OSET? Are you going to be there on Tuesday? No, no, I won't be. I won't be at OSET. Uh, but uh, if anybody's heading to Ishin, South Africa, I'll see you there. And then the the next meeting after that will be Tel Aviv, uh, the hip, knee, and shoulder meeting out there. So hopefully, I, I can see you at one of those too. Love that world traveling stuff. That's like that that little secret sauce that we don't want to talk about. But like when you get really good at this stuff and you got a niche, and then you get invited, you get to go all over the world. How cool is that? That's it's a dream come true, Scott. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Joe. I look forward to seeing you again at a meeting soon. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.